This episode contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Method and Madness. This is Cold, Julie and Terry Dade. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. It was the middle of the night when residents on Laurel Street woke to the sounds of screaming. From their windows, they saw a young woman struggling with a man as he dragged her into a car and drove off. Minutes later, an explosion down the road would lead to the fire department coming upon the unexpected, a victim of homicide. But there was even more to the story. Let's dive in. It was Junction City, Oregon, a two and a half square mile town of farmland. It was mostly known for its annual Scandinavian festival, which to this day is a celebration of the many residents with Danish ancestry. And you can expect a lot of the cliche small town features the Ben Franklin of Five and Dime chain store and the cozy and reliable family-owned pharmacy where the staff knows your name. In the mid-1980s, the farming town would be the setting for the coming-of-age drama, Stand By Me. The general store in Junction City was used for the scene where Will Wheaton's Gordy stops to buy hot dogs for him and his three buddies before they go hiking down a railroad track to find the dead body of a local teen who'd been struck by a train. Sixteen years before the Stephen King adaptation made its theatrical debut, murder had affected this little town. It was 4.20 a.m. on Wednesday, January 21, 1970. It was mild, with temperatures in the mid-fifties, and a few hours to go before the sun would rise. All was quiet until it wasn't. In a residential area over on Laurel Street, ranch-style homes, all in a row, were mostly dark and still. Quite suddenly, a couple living in house number 236 was awakened to the sound of screaming coming from outside. The homeowner, Jack, got out of bed and went to the front window to investigate. He could see commotion over at his neighbor's home, where Don and his wife lived. A girl was screaming and knocking on Don's front door. Jack watched as Don stepped outside, the girl now struggling with a man on the front lawn. The man told Don the girl was drunk and everything was fine, but that's not how it seemed. The unknown male, wearing a heavy coat, with his pants tucked into his boots, dragged the girl, still screaming, over to the street and forced her into his car. Both Don and Jack watched as the man, of medium height and husky build, closed the car door, took out a flashlight, and began looking around for something in the road. A few moments later, he got back into his car and drove off, headed south. The police were summoned to Laurel Street to investigate the troubling scene. A couple more minutes passed by, and the man was back, this time on foot, he once again took out a flashlight and started looking around on the ground. Finally, he seemed to locate something, 
he put an object in his pocket and walked away. When the police arrived at Laurel Street, the man was gone. Meanwhile, another call came in. It had been about 25 minutes since those initial screams had been heard, and four blocks south of Laurel, the residents of a trailer park on Prairie Road woke up to the sound of an explosion. Parked under a carport at Trailer Town Mobile Home Park was a 1962 white Buick station wagon, and it was on fire. Ferris Norman looked out his bedroom window and saw that it was his car, the entire rear of the vehicle engulfed in flames. He ran outside, as did several neighbors, to try and extinguish the fire before it spread even further. But it was hard to get close. The ground was covered in flames which had reached the roof of the carport. A fire extinguisher was making little impact, and the interior of the car was reported to be a complete ball of fire. By 4.50 a.m., sirens were heard as the fire department responded to the south end of town and raced to put out the blaze. What was already a puzzling and chaotic scene became worse when someone cried out that there was a person stuck, possibly trapped underneath the burning vehicle. First responders acted quickly, but it was no use. They discovered the charred body of a young woman under the station wagon, and she was pronounced dead at the scene. It seemed an implausible scenario. How had someone become trapped under a car, and how did it catch on fire? Well, that's what Ferris Norman wanted to know when he was interviewed by police. He was later released. The body was transported to the local hospital, where it was determined to be that of a white female, somewhere between the ages of 14 and 20. Through establishing the cause of death, it was clear that this was no accident. The young woman's body had injuries that were indicative of blunt force trauma. She'd been bludgeoned before the fire began, and her death was officially caused by strangulation and massive blows to the head. Who was she? The answer to that question would come shortly. Piecing together information from that morning, the police knew that minutes before the car fire, there was a young blonde woman who'd been struggling with a man over on Laurel Street, and now there was a young blonde woman in the morgue. The entire area around Laurel Street and Prairie Road was canvassed. People questioned about what they'd seen or heard, and an attempt was made to locate the vehicle driven by the unknown man. By sunrise, Residents had been interviewed and given statements, and by mid-morning, police were led to an apartment complex just a block northwest of where those screams had first been heard. Over on Maple Avenue, at the Maple Manor Apartments in Junction City, lived someone who matched the description of the woman seen struggling with a man on Laurel Street. Her name was Julie Dade, and she lived in Unit 111. Adding to the morning mystery, a resident of Maple Manor Apartments reported to police that they heard a baby crying all morning from the unit in question. The apartment complex was two-story, motel-style living, 
where each unit had its own entrance, accessible from the parking lot. Nobody came to the door when the police knocked, so they gained access and entered the apartment where they found a baby crying but unharmed in his crib. In a second bedroom, officers came upon a man sprawled across a bed, the victim of an apparent gunshot wound. Through the property manager, police learned that the residents of Unit 111 were a young married couple named Terry and Julie Dade. They'd only lived there about two months, and they had just celebrated their baby's first birthday the day before. Now, it seemed, a possible murder-suicide had orphaned the child. What happened in Junction City that morning? Let's take a break. This month, I'd like to invite you, the listener and friends of the show, to join me in a special campaign in support of Season of Justice, a nonprofit dedicated to working directly with families to fund comprehensive awareness campaigns and other initiatives that can push their unsolved cases forward. Season of Justice also provides grants to investigative agencies that fund DNA testing and forensic genetic genealogy research to solve cold cases. Since 2020, Season of Justice has raised more than $1 million in grants for more than 140 cases in North America, leading to six cold cases being solved. But Season of Justice doesn't do this alone, so I'm asking you to consider donating this month. I understand that financial support simply isn't possible for everyone. But if you're able to make a gift to Season of Justice that's meaningful to you, you'll be helping families find answers. You can join me today in supporting Season of Justice with a donation by texting METHOD24 to 53555. Thank you. Police had possibly tracked down their female victim to her residence at the Maple Manor Apartments in Junction City, where they found Terry Dade dead from a gunshot wound. Through dental records, it was confirmed that the young woman found underneath a burning vehicle was in fact Terry's wife, Julie. She was just 20 years old. Terry was just 19 years old and employed at American Can Company. The initial theory based on the scene in the apartment was that Terry killed his wife before turning a gun on himself, but murder-suicide was quickly dismissed when the scene was looked at closer and Terry's body was examined. What appeared to be a wound from a large-caliber gun was in fact caused by blunt-force trauma to the head. Terry Dade had been beaten to death. The couple's baby was taken in to be cared for by an officer's wife and then turned over to grief-stricken family members. Now, with a community in shock, law enforcement began the process of constructing a timeline of events. A double homicide was certainly not typical in Junction City, and in 1970, witness statements, blood type, and fingerprints were what there was to work with. Back then, fingerprints were painstakingly examined by looking at arrest records and manually comparing fingerprint cards of suspects and the fingerprints collected at crime scenes. 
without anyone to connect the fireprints to, and with no solid lead on who the killer could be, police weren't having much luck. They were also reluctant to find or announce a motive. About 80 people attended the funeral for Julie and Terry that Saturday, and Reverend Gilbert Knox, who had officiated the wedding for the young couple, gave remarks. They had just gotten married in 1968 and had had their first child in 1969. Julie Ann Thompson was born to Henry and Margaret on August 8, 1949, in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. When she was about 13 years old, her family moved to the Eugene, Oregon area. Julie graduated from North Eugene High School and is survived by a younger sister, Annette, and a younger brother, Henry. Terry Dade was born on August 21, 1950, to Robert and Nancy, and was a recent graduate of Junction City High School. He had four siblings and worked at the American Can Company Plywood Mill in Junction City. Late on Tuesday, January 20th, Terry arrived home from work about midnight. It's believed that sometime around 3 a.m. on Wednesday, there was a knock at apartment 111. Police speculate that Julie answered the door and was immediately struck in the head or otherwise stunned, and that she lost consciousness. The assailant then went to the couple's bedroom, where he beat Terry to death. Julie was then abducted from the apartment and kept in the attacker's vehicle for some time until she had an opportunity to escape on Laurel Street. She was able to free herself for long enough to bang on someone's front door before being dragged away and forced back in the car. When residents tried to intervene, they were told the young woman was just drunk and the police were called, but by the time they arrived, Julie and her abductor were gone. From there, Julie was driven to a nearby trailer park. Sometime before being placed under Norman Ferris's car, Julie was strangled and beaten to death. Her killer then punctured the gas tank of the station wagon with a screwdriver or a similar tool and set the fuel on fire. Over a dozen investigators in Lane County worked the case led by Captain Ronald Eggleston, and as the years ticked by, the media stopped reporting on the murders, and leads were coming in less frequently. It's hard to imagine a worse nightmare. You spend what's otherwise an ordinary Tuesday celebrating your baby's first birthday, cake, photos, gifts. By the end of the day, you've put your baby to bed, settled into your own bed, and then you're jolted out of sleep in the middle of the night. Who would knock at an apartment door at three in the morning, beat a man to death, and kidnap his wife? Let's break it down. With Terry working full-time, Julie was home every day taking care of their young son. Their apartment complex was near the road, fairly traveled by locals. Julie, an attractive blonde, would likely be seen around town, taking walks with her infant and stopping at local stores for groceries. And somebody, while she was out and about, saw her and targeted her. It could have been a local, someone familiar with the area, who followed the young mother home to assess her living situation, maybe even watched her for a few days. He armed himself with a weapon and appeared at the door in the middle of the night. 
Police theorized that due to no forced entry, he knocked. And there must have been some level of confidence that he'd be able to incapacitate Terry to carry out his main purpose, to assault Julie. Investigators said Julie may have been unconscious when she was taken from her home, only to come to later, while in her abductor's car. Whether she jumped from his moving vehicle and ran toward the homes on Laurel Street, or if the killer had parked somewhere and she had an opportunity and took it, Julie fought and desperately tried to get help. Somewhere on Laurel Street, in the dark, an item was dropped. Something important enough to the killer that he came back to look for it. What that item was is still unknown. But despite the Good Samaritans trying to intervene, Julie's abductor was determined and had his own desperate need to finish out his violent crime and not get caught. In the end, he won. He strangled Julie, bludgeoned her, and set her on fire, all to cover up whatever he'd done. And so a double homicide becomes a cold case. Seven years later, a similar crime happened outside Junction City, Oregon, this time a double homicide in the nearby city of Eugene. On June 9, 1977, 17-year-old Eric Goldstrand and his girlfriend, 16-year-old Liana Adank, were picnicking at Fall Creek, a recreation area known for its campground, fishing, and swimming. When the high school sweethearts failed to return home that evening, their parents worried and called the police. Eric's body later was found in an area of brush and debris. Liana had been sexually assaulted and her body left near the campground. Both teens had been shot. The grieving parents, along with their community, raised funds for a reward which reached $3,000 for any information that would lead to an arrest. For 44 years, the murders of Eric and Liana went unsolved until evidence collected at the crime scene provided investigators with a lead through genetic genealogy. The DNA found at the crime scene was tested in July of 2020. Later in 2021, authorities were alerted to a possible match, a man living in Mesa, Arizona. Police tracked down an individual who had done one of those mail-in ancestry kits, but he didn't match the DNA profile 100%. By testing a cigarette butt discarded by the man's older brother, they were sure they had their guy. The suspect in the killing of Eric and Liana was Ronald Albert Schroy. He had lived in Oregon but moved to Arizona in the 80s. As the police were closing in on an arrest, Ronald took his own life. Dying by suicide seemed a better alternative to being accountable for a 44-year-old murder. A month after his death, police confirmed with certainty that Eric and Liana's murderer was Ronald Schroy, who was 23 years old in 1977. His brother said he had become visibly uncomfortable when the topic of doing an ancestry kit had come up in the conversation. Due to the similar M.O. in that case, was it possible he was also the person responsible for the Dade murders? Ronald Schroy would have only been 16 years old in 1970. I communicated with the Sheriff's Department, but they declined to comment on any connection. 
Nobody has ever been arrested for the murders of Julie and Terry Dade. Their son was raised by Julie's parents, who both died in 2019. In the 90s, it was announced that investigators had two suspects that looked promising, but there wasn't enough to charge either of them. They implored the public to come forward if they knew anything, reasoning that someone had to know who the killer was, but may have stayed silent out of concern for their own safety or to protect their family. By 2020, it was reported that both of those suspects, along with a main witness, are now deceased. As of 2024, a cold case team in Lane County, Oregon, is looking into DNA testing to get the murder solved. Fifty-four years later, the couple has not been forgotten. If you have information about the murders of Julie and Terry Dade, please contact the Lane County Sheriff's Office cold case team at 541-682-4513 and reference case number 700646. Or you may contact the Communication Center at 541 682 4150. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review, and don't forget to hit that follow button. To connect, I'm on X at Method Pod, on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod, and you can find me on TikTok and Facebook as well. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at Method and Madness Pod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.